0: Amen. What a blessing it is to worship a risen Savior. Amen. Amen. He is amazing. His promises endure forever. He is faithful yesterday, today, and forevermore. The salvation he gave you when you received him as Savior, he does not renege on that promise. He holds on to you because he is good. This morning, uh, we are in the, as I said already, the last week of our series. Uh, this series has posed a couple of different questions every single week. We kind of look at a different question. This started with why do bad things happen to good people? We kind of posed that question the first week and unpacked that. And again, I want to say again, if you've missed any of the messages that we've Unpacked and talked about over the last four weeks. You can go on our website, northgoodland.org. You can go on our app, Goodland BC, in your app store. Uh, You can get those on your device and you can download those and watch all those sermons on there and catch yourself up on that. Uh, But this morning, we are asking a final question. And the question really is, what is the point of all this? And so, to kind of remind us just a little bit of where we've been, again, we talked about in the beginning, why do bad things happen to good people? And we've been discussing all the kind of outpouring of that answer it covered a lot of ground understanding there really are no naturally good people. That was a pretty big road, road bump we had to get over in that first week that listen to the words of Christ and the words of Paul in the, in the Bible it's pretty clear. There's no good person naturally. If you remember the story we looked at, Jesus was approached by a rich young ruler. We don't know his name, but he comes to Christ and he asks, what must I do to go to heaven. And there's this amazing interaction. But the important part of that whole story that we unpacked was when he first came to Jesus, he said, he called him good. He said, good teacher. And Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? There's only one good. And that's God. And he was kind of drawing from this young man or this man. We presume to be a young man drawing from him an answer. Do you believe me to be God or just a teacher, just a rabbi? Because if you believe me to be good in the sense that you're using the word good, you must believe then that I am God. Many have concluded that most likely he did not believe that because when Jesus said, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me, he left sad because he had great wealth. And so here we see this example, Jesus' own words. There's only one good and it is God. Paul says it in the book of Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. That no one naturally is good enough. You know why? Because no one's perfect, myself included. What's amazing is when you tell someone that, I've never had people argue with me on that point. I've never had someone say, hold on, back up. Let me tell you about myself. Now I'll say, well, there's no naturally good people. And somebody would argue that point, go, no, you don't understand. I'm a pretty good person. Are you perfect? Well, I'm not perfect. Well, then that kind of rests the case, doesn't it? You see, God's definition of good and the way that we're using it is the standard of perfect righteousness. And we've discovered that there's no naturally good person. So really, it's not bad things happening to good people. It's bad things happening to bad people who sometimes do good things. But then we got to another question in that week, which was, well, then if we're, if we're bad and we're sinful and we're fallen, then why do good things happen to bad people? Like, why would God even allow good things into our lives? And the point is, because he is a gracious, loving God. God allows blessings into our lives for two reasons. We unpacked this in that first week. First of all, those that know Christ and know him as Savior and worship God, and those that don't receive what's called common grace. This is the idea that God is just gracious to all of humanity to some degree. A person who knows Christ and experiences the birth of a child, that's a great blessing. A person who doesn't know Christ is, hates God, wants nothing to do with God, doesn't even want to believe in God, rebels against God, lives sinfully, has a child, and they get to experience that great blessing. Why? Because God gives grace to all of us. The, The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But the other thing we talked about is that the reason God blesses humanity is so that he might draw us unto him. That we might acknowledge him as creator and Lord and savior and enter into a relationship with him through Christ. That we might have that eternal security and that peace that he offers us. Those of us that know Christ, he loves blessing his children. The Bible says that God delights in those who delight in him. So when you rise in the morning, I was just talking to somebody before service today. And they said they just got back from a trip and they were able to spend a week just with believers and kind of doing some training. But with that training came some downtime where they were able to talk about the things of God and and have time of devotion and share with one another and just no distractions of TV and all this other junk, but just really focus on just that relationship with Christ. And they said it was so just refreshing. Uh, They said it was the best trip they've ever been on because they got to just spend that time. You know, every time we delight in God in that way, Do you know what the Father in heaven is doing? He's delighting in you. He's taking joy in you. And so why does God bless his children? Because he loves blessing his children. Now, does that mean that life is perfect and there's never any tragedies? Of course not. So we talked about in the next week, then why do bad things happen at all? Okay, if we're fallen people, that's fine. We understand no one's perfect. But then why even allow bad things? And we talked about the fact that this is a fallen world. Genesis 3 makes it clear That mankind fell into sin and creation groans, humanity groans, believers, we groan because we know what the world could be like and we see that it's broken. Does this mean there's not beauty in the world? No, of course there's beauty in God's creation, but it is not what it was intended to be because of sin. And so bad things happen because sin entered into humanity, entered into the world. So what's the solution? Where do my eyes go when I see a fallen world as a follower of Christ and I see all the brokenness of sin and I see bad people doing bad things to one another and finding very creative ways to do it, by the way. We talked about this before. Why is the world the way it is? Because we call evil good and good evil naturally. We have flipped God's order of creation. We have elevated plant life over human life. We have elevated animal life over human life. And we've put God at the very bottom. See, God is supposed to be number one, but we flipped the order of creation. We put him on the bottom because naturally we don't want anything to do with God. What did Jesus say? Men reject the light. Why? Because they like darkness. I know you're thinking right now, man, I'm so glad I came to church today. This is the most encouraging message I've ever heard. I'm going to come back next week and hear some more. So what is the solution in all of this? The gospel and worship. See, when we see a broken world, a fallen world, there is a hope. There is something greater. And it's not politics. It's not your wealth. It's not your relationships. It's not your careers. It's Jesus Christ. Him crucified, buried, and risen again. And anyone, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how sinful you've been, no matter what you've done, and that literally means... Whatever you've done. There is no sin that outweighs the grace of God. Because where sin abounded, grace much more abounded, Paul says in the book of Romans. We come to Christ and we receive him as our savior. We don't receive religion. We don't receive a religious obligation. We don't get baptized to get saved. We don't do good works to get saved. Nothing apart from Jesus Christ and him alone is our salvation. Now, we talked about this. The whole point of Galatians is what? No, no, it's Jesus plus nothing is salvation because if you could work to earn it and work to keep it then you could lose it but jesus says i hold you in my hand and my hand is in the father's hand and nothing will take you out of my hand ephesians 1 he has sealed you with the holy spirit which we're going to talk about next week unto the day of redemption nothing can take your salvation because you didn't earn it you don't keep it he holds on to you See, that's the gospel. We, we confess our sin and our brokenness and we cry out to him and we ask him to save us. And as an outpouring of that, we worship him as the risen savior. We worship, we lift him up, we praise him. And we want to acknowledge his goodness and his glorious grace. And so we talked about that in those weeks. This morning, we're finishing up with the question, what's the point? What's the point? What's the point of all this? Why worship? Why endure? Is there a greater purpose that we've yet to really think about? The answer that resounds throughout the universe and is found in scripture is yes, there is a purpose. I want you to really focus on this because I know some of you, if you're like me, we can forget the bigger picture. We get so caught up in the, the things we see every day, right? You see something happen, you see a tragedy, you see some kind of something happen in politics or our nation, and you get so focused, and we start looking at this, like, kind of this microscope type view, and we forget there's a greater purpose being accomplished. I said it before, God's global purpose is the spreading of the gospel and the glory of his name. And so what's the point of all this? Why endure? Why worship? Why pray? Why live as a follower of Christ in this world today? Because the glory of God. You see, the point is the glory of God. Everything that was made was made for his glory. Everything he allows to happen is for his glory. Blessing and tragedy magnify him and his attributes in so many ways that we can rejoice. Because he is glorified even when we don't understand. I want to be real for a second. And I know this is church, and some of you have conditioned yourselves to come into church and put on the face and put on the clothes and just kind of, I'm all good, brother, everything's good, no problems, no issues, smile, yep, hey, brother, how you doing, never better, right? We say this stuff in church. And some of you mean it, but some of you are going through something right now. And when I make a statement like that, that everything that happens is for his glory, some of you, and I'm being real right now because I know I've thought it, and if you're thinking this, you're not alone. You're thinking, but you don't know what I'm going through. That sounds good, preacher, but you don't really get it. You don't really know the things that I'm going through, or my family's going through, or this person's going through. Like, you don't understand. And I can resound and say, yes, I have no idea what you're going through. But God knows. And he is working his plan. And his plan is good. It doesn't mean it's going to never involve something we don't understand coming into our lives. A difficulty. A season of maybe wondering a season of maybe where God seems to be not quite as active in our lives as he once was. And we wonder, God, where did you go? He's not abandoned you. He'll never forsake you in Christ. You are his son and daughter, and he has a purpose and a plan. And the plan, the greatest plan, the greatest purpose is his name will be glorified. Look with me in John chapter 17. We're going to open here. We're going to look at a few different passages. And so thank you for bringing your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, Or on your phone or device, there are Bibles provided in the seats there in front of you. Uh, There are Bibles there. If you'd like to use one of those, you can just turn to page 759. So if you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 759, John chapter 17. We're going to kind of use this opening part of John 17 as kind of a springboard into this idea, this topic of the glory of God being really the point of it all. So John chapter seventeen and verse one. Jesus says here in John seventeen one, these words spake Jesus and lift up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Verse 4, I have glorified Thee on the earth. I have finished the work which Thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. I know we've already prayed a couple times this morning, but can we pray and ask God to affirm these words in our hearts and minds by the working of the Spirit. Father, we come before you a hungry people needing to hear from you. Father, if there's anyone in this room right now that is anticipating to hear from my opinions or my thoughts, they're going to be gravely disappointed. I have nothing to offer but your word. I'm finite, I'm simple. But Father, you are able to work by the working of your spirit in the hearts and minds of men. You're able to do things and work in ways that we can't even understand. So I pray that as only you can, by the working of your spirit, that your word would be affirmed in our hearts and minds, that we would be drawn to conformity to your likeness, that you would be completely free, that we would surrender to allow you to mold us and shape us So, Father, we pray that we would not get in your way this morning. I pray that you'd give me clarity of mind, clarity of thought, that I'd be able to communicate what you have for me to say. And, Father, I pray that ultimately everything that is said and done will glorify you. Lord, I know this is a broad topic for many to try to put their minds around, but I pray that we would not allow it to just glance over us and kind of drift over us, Lord, but we would zero in and we would desire to be changed this morning if anyone Lord, leaves this room the same way they came in. Lord, we missed it. I don't want to see that happen, Lord. I pray that everyone in this room would know that you, by your design, placed them here. This is not coincidence or chance. This is you drew them here. And that's for a reason. So, Father, may you be glorified in all of this. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 17, here we read. The emphasis of Jesus' opening in his prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now this is before the cross. And many of you have heard the Jesus' model prayer or the model prayer in Matthew. And some have said that's the model prayer. But that is more of a model prayer, but it's not the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer, if you want to be specific, or the prayer of Christ, we find in John 17. This is what Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. And when we read these opening five verses, we are blown away with a emphasis on the glory of God. You cannot read these five verses and not leave this passage thinking about anything other than the glory of God. Not only the glory of God, but the glory of the son. Before Christ went to the cross, he was fixed on the glory of God being accomplished through his sacrifice. He even says, I have glorified you on earth. I'm ready to now glorify you in this sacrifice. There's a purpose to this. There's a point to this. I almost said purpose, but that's not what we're talking about. There's a point. When you see the cross, and if you only saw the cross, if you zeroed in just on the cross, just on Jesus, dying on that cross, and you did not know the before and after, you would think Jesus lost and the enemy lost. One, You would think, man, look, he's dying on the cross. Satan has won. But When you step back and you realize the greater purpose in this is that, oh, no, dying on that cross was not the end of our Savior. That he was buried in a borrowed tomb. I love that phrase. The coffin, well, I don't know, maybe, but for most of us, the coffin you, you use when you leave this world, it, it's not going to be borrowed. Meaning it's going to be yours and then most likely it won't be anyone else's. The tomb that Jesus used, he only needed it for three days. And when he rose again, showing victory over death and hell and sin and affirming that the father received the sacrifice of the son by rising him from the dead, guaranteed us eternal life. See, when you see the cross in just this small little window, you think, oh man, Jesus lost. But oh no, he was victorious over sin and death and hell. And the purpose of all of it, is the glory of God. That God might be glorified. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. He says, the hour is come. I've done the work that you've led me to do to this point. I've glorified you. The Bible says that Jesus pleased the Father in everything he ever said and done. As the God-man, he was the perfect sacrifice. He says, I'm going to glorify you in this sacrifice. It's the glory of God on display. John Piper sums it up well when he was referencing, even in Isaiah, a reference there to the sovereignty and the work of God. Thinking here of what Jesus is saying in John 17. I love this quote. He sums it up well. when He says this, behind and beneath the sovereign exercises of God's mercy as king is an unwavering passion for the honor of his name and the display of his glory. Behind and beneath the sovereign exercises of God's mercy as king, there's no more a merciful act than the Son of God, God himself dying on a cross for our sins, that we might know him and be saved. It is the most clear definition of mercy and grace that we can imagine. He said, behind behind, and beneath those exercises of God's mercy is an unwavering passion for the honor of of his name and the display of his glory. Let me pause for a second here. I want you to think about this follower of Christ, believer, Christian. You're here. You know Christ. Would you describe? You don't need to answer out loud, but would you describe your desire for the glory of God to be on display in your life and in this world? Would you describe it as a passion, not a, not an interest? Not a, if I got time. Not if it's convenience. But would you describe your desire to see the glory of God displayed in all things. That you would actually say, it is my passion. Some of you are passionate about a hobby. Some of you are passionate about clothes. Some of you are passionate about arts or music or entertainment or whatever. We have different passions. But would you honestly describe. Your desire for the glory of God to be displayed as not only a passion, but your greatest passion. Or is it in the back of your mind every now and then? Is it a passing thought in church? Is it something that maybe enters your mind through the course of a week a couple times? Or is it just something that consumes you? to where you wake up every day and say, God, today is a day that I want your glory to be on display. You see, the glory of God is on display in us. By God's design, it's on display in us. Go over to First Corinthians chapter 10. A familiar passage, but a great summary verse for what we're talking about this morning. First Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Many of you have maybe memorized this verse. You're familiar. It's highlighted. It's underlined in your Bible. And praise God that it is. Praise God that you have drawn yourself to this verse. Because I believe this gives us a great, again, summary point of this idea of the glory of God. It says this, simply put. Whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do. So what's the, what's the escape clause here? What can I do that I don't have to glorify God? Because he says, whatever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, the glory of God is on display in us. And it's on display in two ways. I'm going to give you two simple ways that we can kind of summarize the glory of God being on display in us. The first thing we have to acknowledge is through our attitudes. Through our attitudes. If you're taking notes... The glory of God is on display in us through our attitudes. Again, do we meditate on the glory of God? Do you dwell there? Does our mindset reflect a desire to lift up his name, not our name? To give him recognition, and we're okay not getting recognized. And I'm not saying we can't recognize one another. Paul says that if one is honored, we all honor. If one is saddened, we all are saddened with them. Obviously, we can honor and and acknowledge one another and successes that, that we have, but ultimately, do our minds drift to saying, no, it's about lifting up his name. It's about acknowledging his glory. If we are honest, we will admit that while we desire that to be the case, it is difficult to truly dwell our minds on his glory in all that we do. I know I can tell you that my attitudes at times in the course of a day, usually when I'm driving, do not reflect the glory of God and that I would lift up his name. That I don't always let my mind drift to that during the course of a day or a week. I let things distract me. I let things get on my mind. I let things bother me. And I don't actually stop and pause and say, God, you be glorified in this. Let my mindset, my attitude Drift to you. So I want to encourage you if you're human and you're normal and like everyone else, you most likely don't spend every day dwelling your mind on the glory of God. But that doesn't mean we can't grow, and that doesn't mean there's not grace. If your greatest passion is not the glory of God, then my encouragement to you is realize there's grace to strengthen you, to comfort you, to come alongside you. He's given you his spirit, which will lead you into all truth, guide you in all truth, draw to your remembrance, all the things that you've learned of him through his word. He will equip you that you can grow to the point of saying, you know what? I'm not there yet, but man, I'm so thankful that God has allowed me to be where I am today where yes, my mind does drift to him. I love to taking delight in the glory of God. Do you know how we're going to spend eternity? Delighting in the glory of God. We're going to talk about that in just a moment here, the, the worship that we're going to experience. But do our attitudes dwell there? It's not about, if you're not there yet, it's not about beating yourself up, but about seeking him in prayer, desiring that we will take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians ten five. Allowing the mind or attitude, again, of Christ, which we have in Christ, to flow out of us. Philippians 2 and verse 5. That we would, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take every thought captive to the the name of Christ. When a thought enters our mind that we know does not honor God, glorify him, we say, no, I refuse that. God, take that thought captive. Give me strength in this. And then Paul says in Philippians that we should learn from the humility and the sacrifice of Christ to say let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus that mind that word mind there means attitude let this mindset be in you that Jesus equal to God in every way he is not sort of god kind of god he is god and yet he humbled himself and took on flesh and even went to the cross why For the glory of God. See, through our attitudes, we can display the glory of God. When our attitudes and minds are fixed on the glory of God, it will lead to the glory of God being on display through our actions. In our minds, when we set our minds on him, I I love what David says. David says, I delight in the law of God. Day and night. Now, it doesn't mean literally he walked around with the law just reading it 24-7. That's not what that's referring to. It's, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's saying he constantly meditated on the word of God. So when we're driving to work in the morning, do our minds drift to the things of God? I promise you, if you start your day with your mind on him in prayer and meditation, of just focusing on him, I promise you, your attitude at work will be different. Your attitude towards your spouse will be different. <laughs> you don't know my spouse. Trust me, it's going to be different. It just changes things when we set our minds on him and realize, listen, the, the, the end of my life, the goal of my life is not to amass as much stuff as possible, to impress my neighbors and my friends as successful. The end of my life, I pray, and I, I believe we do have a desire of this as followers of Christ, whether we, again, act on it or not, that's, we're all at different places, but there's grace for that. But the desire of our life should be, I want to finish my race. I want to run my course well. I want to stand before God and say, God, I didn't do it perfectly, but thank you for your grace that was covering me because I desired to glorify you. Do our minds drift there? When they do, when our minds go there through our actions, we will see his glory on display. Throughout the Bible and church history, we see example after example of individuals doing amazing things for God. What is the common denominator? These that whatsoever they did, they did for the glory of God. What was the common denominator among all these great men and women in church history and in the word of God that did these great things for God? It was all for his glory alone. William Carey said it well, great missionary to India. Really one of the fathers, known as the father of modern missions. said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Why? Why do that? Why expect great things from God and attempt great things for God? Not for our fame or our acknowledgement, but for the glory of God. William Carey, again, missionary to India. Another example of a missionary to India, Amy Carmichael. Some of you are familiar with these names. Two missionaries that served in India and did amazing things for the cause of Christ. What's amazing to me about both their stories, and we had a chance to study these lives a couple as summers ago on Wednesday night, we did a study through these different individuals. What's amazing to me about their life stories is when they died. They lived their lives, did great work for missions. William Carey actually could be credited with why Amy Carmichael even went to India in the first place to work with children. She was rescuing children from what, what, what we now call sex trafficking. You see, in Amy Carmichael's day in the Hindi prostitute, or Hindi temples, they were prostituting children. And she couldn't stand that. So she went and she built this center, this amazing compound to protect these kids and give these kids an education, give them a chance at life. And she rescued these children. And one of the reasons she went is because of the works of William Carey, who was paramount in leading others to take on worldwide missions. And when these two individuals died, they both had a strange request. No grave markers, no gravestones. No monuments, no pillars, no plaques, nothing. They both said the same thing. Bury me in an unmarked grave because I don't want people coming to my grave going, look what they did. They both wanted people to go, look what their God did through them. And I'm telling you, when we get this mindset as followers of Christ, that we stop caring about who gets the credit because all the credit should go to him, you will see God do amazing things in your life and in our church. What is the point of all of this? It is the glory of God alone. These are just two examples of the humility that we see demonstrated in the life and death of individuals that understood the works we do for Christ are all because of his working through us. They did not want the credit or recognition. They merely wanted to please their father and glorify him. We see that the glory of God is on display through our attitudes in us and through our actions. What we're doing for the cause of Christ makes an impact. You may not see it. Some of you maybe have taught children in Sunday school or junior church. I just want to tell you, we have amazing volunteers here who serve and love our kids. Uh, this morning, we're going to have some children be baptized. And it's a testimony to the parents and grandparents. hundred percent agree with that. But I would also say it's a testimony to those workers that have sat with them Wednesday after Wednesday, Sunday after Sunday, just loving on them and sharing the word of God with them. And listen, why do they do that? For the glory of God alone. Maybe some of you have worked with kids. Uh, We were in youth ministry for 16 years before and during while I was kind of becoming the senior pastor here. And you look at those kids and you think they're not getting it. Little Billy in the corner, you're like, I kind of wish Billy would stop coming. No, you don't really think that, but <laughs> <clears throat> there's a part of you that thinks Billy, you know, he's nice, but he's eating stuff again. He's under the table, you know, whatever. Maybe you've worked with children and you think I just doesn't be getting getting through. Let me promise you, if you gave them the Word of God and you loved them in Jesus, it made a difference. It's making a difference. And so why do we do these things for the glory of God? Quickly. And again, you guys know what that means. (laughs) Nothing. There's no such thing as quickly in a Baptist church. Amen? The glory of God is not only displayed in us through our attitudes and actions. It's on display in eternity. It is on display in the worship at his throne. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation. Chapter 5, last book of the Bible in the New Testament. We're going to see that his glory is on display throughout all eternity. We're going to see in chapter 5, it is on display through the worship at his throne. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy, verse 9 of chapter 5, thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Again, this is not a local gospel. This is not an American gospel. This is not a Western civilization gospel. This is a global gospel. It is good news, as the angel proclaimed at the birth of Christ, for all peoples. In the Bible, the word peoples is referring to people groups, language groups. And every single one of them matter to God. And I love this seeing and recounting of these that are before the throne. It goes on to say in verse 10, as they're worshiping Christ. And had made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. Oh, what a day. I I couldn't have asked Renee to read a verse and to share a comment that would have fit better And as she was reading that, I was like, God, you are so amazing that you are sovereign enough to orchestrate all this together. Thinking about the choirs of angels as we stand before the throne. I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This is not a literal number. This is meant to make us think that is a lot. That is a lot. But even in that 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. They are all amassed around the throne of God and they're worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping God. And what are they saying? Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the sea. And all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. When does the glory of God stop? When do we stop praising his glory? Never. We will continually praise and praise and praise. And the four beasts said amen. And the the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And ever. You see, the glory of God is on display in us, but it's also on display from His throne. And at the throne, we see the worship, the worship that takes place there. What an amazing image for us to envision. Have you ever read this passage and stop and close your eyes and just think, try to imagine what it would be like? As we spoke about last week, the throne of God is surrounded by the sounds of praise. If you go to church, and three worship songs, you're like, I'm kind of getting, you know, can we cut a song out? I'm, it's a little too much worship for me. You are going to have a hard time in heaven. It says forever and ever and ever. It's, it's just continual praise. Why? Because he is worthy. In fact, the book of Revelation, many may not know this, is really the most Christ-exalting book in the New Testament. It emphasizes the glory of Christ on every page. So why are they singing? What would cause such a response? It is because God is worthy and he will be glorified. Christ became the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. He is worthy. We, along with the masses of angels, recognize and shout his praise. Not just when we gather at church, but every single day of our lives. Worship is not a song. Worship is not a song style, music style, something you do before the sermon. Worship is a lifestyle. Every day we praise him. Every day we worship him. Because all through eternity, his glory will be on display through the worship at his throne. Not only do we see his glory on display by the worship at his throne, we also, believe it or not, see the glory on display from the judgment from his throne. Go over to Revelation chapter 20. And verse 11. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. I love hearing the pages of God's word turn. That's amazing. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Don't take offense if you're using a device. That was not... I don't want to get an email... I was so offended. I use a phone. Okay, great. Good for you. Okay, that wasn't what it was about. But anyway. Now I'm going to get an email about saying, don't send me an email. Anyway. He goes on to say here in Revelation 20, verse 11 And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Notice the dead are judged by their works. Those outside of Christ are judged by their works. We are judged for our work for Christ in a way of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. We are not judged by our works as though we've earned our way into heaven. But those outside of Christ, all they have are their works. All they have are their supposed good deeds. And so God says, okay, if this is what you bring before me, this is what I will judge you on. It goes to say in verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead, which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, we like to think about the worship at his throne. We like to think about the worthiness of Christ that he died for our sins. But when we talk about the judgment of God, we shriek away from thinking that this can somehow glorify God. We think that only the good defined by us things glorify God. But the glory of God is not found only in salvation of lost sinners. It is clearly seen in the just condemnation of those who reject Christ. Just as much as God is gracious and loving, he is holy and just. And when his holiness is magnified, he is glorified. R.A. Torrey said in one of his works very well, God does not punish the sinner merely for the sinner's good. God is holy. God hates sin. His holiness and hatred of sin, like every one of his attributes, is living and active and must manifest itself. His holy wrath at sin must strike. Any view of punishment of sin that leaves out the thought of its being an expression of God's holy hatred for sin is not only unbiblical, but also shallow and dishonoring to God. We will not truly appreciate the overwhelming love and forgiveness in Christ until it is seen in the light of his holiness and hatred of sin. When we understand the disgust that God has for sin, we will greatly magnify the glory of God in our salvation and the forgiveness of sins that he offers freely through Christ. You see, the glory of God will be magnified, will be glorified. We will praise him. Paul says it this way, we will either praise him in this life, or we will bend a knee and praise him in the judgment to come. He will receive honor and praise, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is not at all intended to scare anyone. This is the reality of God's word. I said it before, some places we shy away from preaching things like sin and hell and judgment, which concerns me because Jesus cared enough about us to preach and speak on those things through the Gospels. He is gracious and loving and kind, and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you refuse his salvation, the Bible says your destination is an eternity separated from him in a place called hell. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was cast away. And your name is not written in the book because of what you do. Your name is written in the book for what he's done. You don't work your name into the book. He grants you by his grace, a new name, a new identity in Christ. So what's the point? Why continue to let fallen man live in a fallen world? The answer is simple for the glory of God alone that humanity will repent of their sin and trust in Christ the Savior, that they may be with him forever. As followers of Christ, we can get so discouraged and frustrated by the things we see in our world. However, I believe everything changes when we realize that we exist for the glory of God alone, no matter what circumstances we may find ourselves in from day to day. God has graciously placed you exactly where you are at exactly a time like this. He's placed you in your job in your home, in your school, in your family, exactly where you're supposed to be so that you may glorify him. So is the glory of God in, on display in your attitudes? Is the glory of God on display in your actions? Do you honestly have a passion for his glory above all else? If you would say, I don't, then I would encourage you this morning to, in a minute, we're going to have a time of invitation to respond to him and say, Lord, Give me a burning passion for your glory. That I would live in a way that would honor you. That others would be discipled. Come to be followers of Christ. That you would be glorified. Because it's all about you. And one day, Lord, I'll stand before your throne and I will shout praises to you. And I can't wait. But until that day, help me to share this with others. Because there's coming a day of judgment. Those who are not in Christ will be cast away. Help me to do what I can do. That they may know there is a hope that is greater than what they see. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? The praise team is going to come and lead us in a song of invitation. Would you begin to pray right there where you are? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that has already been done. We thank you for the dedication of Gideon. For the time of worship to praise you and lift you up. A time where we can give back to you an offering of praise. Father, for the preaching and teaching of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit speaking and moving. Thank you for the application that I pray we would take part in now. Not just that we heard a good sermon and we go home feeling spiritually satisfied. But that we would allow you to change something in us that would be conformed to the image of Christ in a new way. Not that we would be envied of our friends to be, quote, spiritual. Oh no, we are, we are undone in our sin. Graciously forgiven, earning none of it. But I pray that we'd go forth, that your glory would be on display. Thank you for these that have come to be baptized. Again, thank you for your grace. And Lord, if there's somebody sitting in this room right now, they've been to church before, they've done the religious thing, maybe they've even prayed a prayer, but they've never really confessed their sin, turned from their sin, and trusted in you as Savior, I pray they would know that there is a judgment coming, that we boast not of tomorrow, for we don't know what a day may bring forth, that this is the moment of salvation for them, if they would repent of their sins and trust in you, right there where they are, between you and them in their heart, maybe they'd cry out and say, Lord, Forgive me of my sin. I trust you as Savior. I live my life for you. Whatever the cry of their heart, Lord, you know. Father, may you work and draw unto salvation by the moving of your spirit. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing? Maybe you want to come forward bend a knee and pray. Ask God to magnify his glory in your life. Whatever it is, would you respond to him as we worship